A database stores data to an underlying section of storage. If you are an application developer, you might think of your persistent storage system as being the database itself. But at a lower level, that database is writing to block storage, or file storage, or object storage. A container orchestration system manages application containers. If you want to run WordPress, a blogging platform, in a container on Kubernetes, that means you also need a database to store your blog posts in a persistent way. To run a database, you need to have an underlying storage medium, which could be a disk that is on your on-prem data center. It could also be block storage on disk at a cloud provider. Kubernetes is not the only container orchestrator. There's also Cloud Foundry, there's Mesos, there's Docker Swarm, several others. Each of these container orchestrators needs to be able to run a variety of persistent workloads, such as a MySQL database or a Kafka cluster. Each of these persistent workloads needs to be able to use different types of backing storage. With the range of container orchestrators and the range of backing storage types, you get a problem. Every storage type would have to write custom code to connect to each container orchestrator. It's an end-to-end problem. The solution to this is the CSI, the Container Storage Interface. The CSI is a common interface layer between the container orchestrator and the backing storage system. In today's episode, GU from Mesosphere describes the motivation for the CSI and gives an overview for its design principles. There are some great lessons here for anyone working with containers or distributed systems in general. And if you're a little bit confused about what the CSI is right now, don't worry. We get into it in this episode. We explain it in great detail. Before we get to today's episode, I want to just announce that we're looking for writers for Software Engineering Daily. So if you're interested in writing, send me an email to write at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We want to bring in some new voices. We want to deliver high-quality content about software that will stand the test of time. And the container orchestration details of Kubernetes and the container storage interface, this is a perfect example of something that has not been written about much relative to how interesting a topic it is. So if you have something niche, something interesting, something technical that you want to write about, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash write, find out more. I'd love to hear from you. We're looking for part-time and full-time software journalists and also volunteer contributors who just want to write about software engineering. We want to explain technical concepts. We want to tell the untold stories of the software world. And we'd love to hear from you. So send me an email or go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash write. GU is an engineer with Mesosphere, and he works on the container storage interface. G, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. I want to talk about storage on container orchestration systems, connecting these two pieces together. I think we should start with a simple example. So if I'm running a container orchestration system, it's probably doing a variety of things. It's helping me run my different applications. One simple application that requires storage is WordPress. WordPress is a blogging platform with a database involved. I need to be able to read and write to that database. What do I need out of my underlying storage system? If I want to be able to run WordPress on a container orchestrator like Kubernetes or Cloud Foundry. Yeah, so typically for those applications, you have the stateful part and the stateless part. By stateless part, I mean the application, like for example, the web server and the application business logic that has nothing to do with any state. And the stateful part usually means like you have a database or some storage system online that you can store your state because most of the application do require some state. So in this particular case uh, for WordPress, the, the stateless part is probably like a web server and the stateful part is probably like a database like a MySQL. So, so basically, you're asking, like, how do I run MySQL on a container orchestration system like Kubernetes? So typically, for those databases, they need like a file system they can write their data to or a raw block device they can write their data to. So the underlying container orchestration system needs to provide primitive allowing a database application to write those data to. So 
many people think of their database as their backend, but a database is in some ways an application. It's an application that is backed by a more primitive storage element. Help to clarify this. If I have a MySQL database that WordPress is running on top of, what are the different underlying storage mediums that could be underlying that database? So typically, the, the database use operating system APIs to talk to the storage systems. So that API is POSIX API, like read, write, those F-Sync, those kind of storage POSIX APIs. And operating system like Linux usually provide different device drivers in the file system APIs to allow those applications like, like MySQL to, to write their data to. Underneath is the device driver that actually back those file system calls like read and write. And you can have different type of device drivers that back those file system API calls. And device driver can just basically like a very vendor specific things. For example, if you have a spindle disk, you have some special device driver for that. And if you have something like EBS or some remote storage, and based on iSCSI, you have a special device driver for that. These remote storage backing systems like Amazon Elastic Block Storage or Google Persistent Disk, do these necessarily exist on the same physical machine or in the same physical data center as your compute node that the container orchestration system is running on? Not necessarily. Especially for EBS and GCE PD, they're, they're remote. They're not local to the node. And I don't know if they're in the same data center or not. There's some, some restriction on EBS, for example, that you can only access in EBS volume in the same zone as the volume. So to clarify, you could have a WordPress blogging platform with a MySQL database that underlies that WordPress instance, and the MySQL database application would be running on your Kubernetes node as essentially an application that's running there, the database application, and the backing storage, the Amazon EBS, for example, might be in a different data center. And so there might be a, a network connection that your overall system needs to go over in order to complete a write to your database. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So the reason I, I lay out this example is just to give a perspective that there is a lot of complexity and distribution of systems in how the backing storage systems can inter be interfacing with your container orchestration system. So in the cloud-native ecosystem, we have these container orchestrators. We have Kubernetes, Cloud Foundry, Mesos, and then we have this variety of storage vendors. We have Amazon EBS, like we mentioned, Google Persistent Disk, NetApp. There's some other legacy storage vendors. How have the variety of container orchestrators and the variety of storage types, how have these communicated in the past? Because we've had Cloud Foundry for a while. We've had Mesos for a while at this point. We've had Kubernetes for several years. In these years leading up to the present, how have the container orchestrators and the storage systems communicated? So typically, like before CSI was introduced, I think each different container orchestration system like Kubernetes, Cloud Foundry, Mesos, they all have their own interface internally that the vendor has to implement so that the CEO container orchestration system can talk to those vendor during the life cycle of volume. For example, for, for example, Kubernetes, they have flex volume and also the entry volume driver so that as a storage vendor, like I'm a NetApp, I can either write a flex volume based implementation to connect to Kubernetes or I can write an entry volume driver for that. So that's for Kubernetes. For um, Docker, Mesos, Cloud Foundry, actually all these three are previously using this interface it's called Docker Volume Driver Interface and it's called DVDI. So that's an interface that's kind of internal to Docker. But since Docker is so popular, then those two other container orchestration systems decide to use that to talk to the underlying storage vendor through that interface. So I have a container on Kubernetes, for example. I want to be able to write data from my application container to a persistent storage type. There are many different storage types that I could be writing data to. 
how does the container know how to connect to all these different storage types? So from user's perspective, these are the details that's not exposed to the user. So if you're a Kubernetes user that you want to use MySQL, you want to run MySQL on top of Kubernetes, what you should care about is not the underlying which vendor you pick, all these kind of stuff. You only pick which storage class you need. And Kubernetes has this internal uh, mapping from a storage class to an actual vendor-specific parameters and, and configuration for the storage system. So storage class is like basically like strings, like fast, medium, slow, um, just a, a name for a class of storage. And Kubernetes internally will map that to a bunch of parameters. And then Kubernetes internally will actually um, talk to the corresponding vendor through that interface, either in tree or flex volume. Now the CSI is being introduced. So there's another way to, to talk to those vendors through the CSI interface right now. And through that interface, Kubernetes will drive some of the storage specific operation, like creating the volume or, or attach the volume or mount the volume, things like this. Define that term volume. What is a Kubernetes volume? You can think of volume as a file system that's mounted somewhere in the container that the application can write their data to using the POSIX API I mentioned earlier, like the read, write, um, the Linux system calls. And the data will be actually persisted as long as the volume object exists. And that persistence, the mechanism by which data is persisted, will actually depend on what the storage medium that is backing the volume is, correct? Right. Now, does the idea of a volume exist in other container orchestrators, talking about Docker Swarm or Cloud Foundry? Yeah, so Docker has um, Docker volume, which is essentially similar to Kubernetes volume. because I think the semantics are very similar because it, all of them are a file system that mounted somewhere in the container that, that you can talk to using POSIX APIs. Yeah, Docker has Docker volume. Cloud Foundry, I'm not so familiar with. Mesos, uh, you have um, this concept called volume too, which is, is exact the same semantics as Kubernetes volume. Container orchestrators have historically exposed a pluggable storage interface, and all of the storage providers have had to adapt to those unique interfaces. So every container orchestrator has their own, you know, historically has had their own storage interface, and all the providers have had to adapt to whatever that interface is, given a, an instance like, you know, Amazon EBS would have to adapt to Cloud Foundry, and then they would also have to adapt to Kubernetes. So they would have to make multiple plug-and-play systems for different interfaces. Why is that problematic? So I think there's a survey. I remember there's a survey uh, a long time ago that the CNCF guys did. Like basically, like for example, um, for just EBS, there are like five plugins out there that they built to adapt to different container orchestration systems. That's just for EBS. They're, they're like for other vendors, it's part of the same thing. So it's really painful for vendor because... They're building some software and then they have to adapt to every single container orchestration system. And it's a moving target because there might be new container orchestration system being introduced. So it's really painful to maintain all these. Analogy of this problem is like once you build an electric electric appliances, you have to adapt to different type of electronic outlet standard which is really painful because when you travel, you have to bring those adapters. Uh, it's, it's, it's most painful for vendor, painful for, eventually painful for customers yeah. and also operators because they need to operate all these vendors and they have to find the right interface to use when they deploy different container orchestration systems. So I think we've outlined the problem here. You've got different container orchestration systems, Cloud Foundry, Mesos, Kubernetes, Docker Swarm, there's several others, but that's just four already. And then you've got different storage providers. You've got Amazon EBS, you've got Google Cloud Persistent Disk, you've got NetApp, you have Portworks, you have all these different storage systems. If there was not some common way for container orchestration systems and storage systems to communicate, you have an end by end problem. You you would have if you had four container orchestrators and four storage systems, you would have to have sixteen interfaces between them. So the CSI, the Container Storage Interface, is an opportunity to connect those two classes of systems, container orchestration systems and storage systems, in a unified fashion. 
Tell me some of the high-level design principles behind the CSI. So yeah, I think the project gets started when, I mean, I think we saw a bunch of successful examples, previous examples, especially not in the storage area, in the networking area initially, that the container network interface is a good example of such an interface that bring the container orchestration system and network vendor together. And that turns out, turns out to be very successful. And that's the reason we kind of started a CSI um, project. And I will have a bunch of conversation with folks in different container orchestration systems. And the first thing we do actually initially was trying to look in, into existing interfaces that people have have already, for example, Docker volume driver interface and the flex volume interface or even the entry volume driver in, in Kubernetes. And we find a bunch of problems there. I mean, there's um, there's a bunch of problems. I'm going to outline the, those problems right now, which I think some of the interface is CLI-based. For example, flex volume. By CLI-based, I mean that the container orchestration system, when there's a volume to be attached, it will invoke a CLI binary to actually attach that volume and the, the storage vendor will provide an implementation of that binary. But the problem for that is uh, it's really hard to maintain CLI dependencies and think about deploy all, all the dependency of your CLI on every single box. It, it's really painful. I used to work at Twitter and I know the tool that we use at the time to deploy such dependency is like Puppet, which is super slow and also error prone. When, and it's very hard to deploy those kind of stuff. And, and that's what container is meant for. So I think some of the interfaces CLI based is not ideal. And some of the interface like Docker volume driver interface is, is problematic because it lacks the item potency. What I what I mean is in a distributed system, when you talk to some when a system A talks to system B and the interface between system A and system B, if it's not item potent, what that means is if you issue two the same request twice to, to the same system, it should result the same thing. But if that's not the case, it's really hard to um, make it correct, especially in the failure scenarios. Actually, there was a, a blog post from Stripe engineer at the time writing about why in a distributed system, you have to design your API always to be idempotent. And DVDI, Docker Volume Driver Interface, the interface is not idempotent, make it really hard to deal with those failure scenarios. And some of the interface that we look at, like for example, the Kubernetes entry volume driver, I think they, at the time, they kind of wants to get rid of, get rid of that because I think it, it creates such a burden for them, especially during the release cycle where everyone wants to jam into, well, want to have some patch into to, to the Kubernetes core. And it's very hard to coordinate in the release. And especially, and also like after the, the Kubernetes has been released, Whenever there's a bug in a driver, you have to wait for the next Kubernetes release, which is pretty long. Um, so it's not ideal for Kubernetes community and also not ideal for um, the storage vendor, and they want to fix that. So basically, these are the problems we solve from the existing interfaces, and we don't see there's a solution right now that at a time that we can fix all the issues. So we decide to start this project with the goal and with the design principle to solve all these issues that we mentioned earlier. Like it should not be a CLI-based interface because the dependency management is going to be hard. The API should be idempotent so that uh, it's easier to handle um, those failure scenarios and it should probably not be in tree interface. It has to be out of tree so that the release cycle can be decoupled. We'll go through some of those topics of discussion. Let's start with the in tree. So in tree refers to the tree of the source code. So an in tree solution would mean that you would have driver code for all of these different storage systems in the source code for your container orchestrator. So the container orchestrator source code would have to contain specific code for servicing storage requests to EBS and other source code for managing Google Persistent Disk and other source code for port works. And that's problematic because every time a storage system would come out, you would have to add in blocks of code in Kubernetes itself that would say, yeah, new storage system came out like Google Magical Store, and we need to be compliant with that. So instead, you go with the out-of-tree solution. Give a little more color on in-tree versus out-of-tree solutions. Yeah, in-tree, as you mentioned, the source code of the vendor code is actually part of the container orchestration system. It run typically that means like those code will be running in the same Linux process, OS process as the CO container orchestration system. But the problem for that is. First of all, the release cycle, as I mentioned, the release cycle is tied together, which is not ideal. The second thing about the, the issue is the security. For example, because your code is actually running in the same OS process as the CO, you have the same privilege as the CO. 
but the code itself is not actually written by CEO. It's written by storage vendor. And there needs to be a trust between CEO and those storage vendors' code. But it's really hard to achieve that. So that then that causes some of the security issues. By out of tree is the storage plugin will actually be running in a different so first of all the so out of tree means the code itself for the storage vendor is actually in a different repo than the, the container orchestration systems um, code. So usually if that's the case, it typically means that the code itself uh, will be running in a separate OS process uh, as the CO because I think if they are running in the same OS process, the only way you can do that is through dynamic linking, which is not very portable across multiple languages. And, and one of the goals we want to achieve is like, because Kubernetes is written in Go, Mesos is written in C++, and, and Docker is written in Go, so we want to be like, we want to deal with all different languages. We don't want to tie to a particular language. So dynamic linking is not an option for us. So if when we mean out of tree, it's always mean like it's out of process too. So the plugin itself is running in a separate process and container orchestration system will talk to those plugin process through some APIs to make those volume cycle, volume lifecycle calls like attach volume and create volume. There's a question here of where the code should be. So the code for the container storage interface, you put it in the control plane only, not the data plane. To describe this in more detail, what is the control plane? What does that mean specifically? And why is the CSI code localized to the control plane versus the data plane? Yeah, so control plane and data plane, as far as I know, it's kind of borrowed from the networking terminology because that's a use, like that used to be the term in the networking area where control plane means it control where the packet go, but doesn't dictate how the package is flow through on the network. For example, uh, like routing, like when you have a package, you, you decide where the package should go. That's control plane operations. But like how the package actually flow into a different host or different router, that's data plane issues. It's not control plane. So map that to storage. Control plane means like how those volumes are actually being set up and connected to the CO. And data plane in storage actually means like how these data actually flows. Like for example, through iSCSI protocol flow through like fiber channel or, or like some uh, IP, TCP IP based protocol to, for those storage actual data to flow from one host to a different host from container orchestration system to the storage vendor. We don't try to define that protocol. We only want to define the protocol where specify how the volume should be connected. How do we set up the volume? How do we mount the volume? And we don't care about how the volume data will go and how that should go. It's been really important for the CSI to be vendor neutral. And this is part of Kubernetes drawing on lessons from past open source systems where there were vendor wars over control over certain areas of the storage system. So I, I'm not sure exactly which open source systems, and I probably shouldn't even name, name names, but there have been open source projects in the past where vendors have gotten involved too much in specifications that should have been non-vendor specific. And so because of that, the whole ecosystem can get contaminated with these tribalistic business interests. So vendor neutrality, how do you... I think, first of all, like, why wouldn't this be vendor neutral? Like, What is the difficulty in making your container storage interface vendor neutral? How would you potentially favor a vendor, and how do you avoid that? Well, I think by vendor neutral, I think basically for the specification itself, no vendor can actually dictate the direction of the spec. As you said, that usually mean like if we have some vendor that have a control on the, the, the specification, they will put some of the vendor specific features or proprietary features into the spec because vendors always keep competing with each other. They have some proprietary feature they want to sh- they want that to be shining in the CO systems. And if we let one vendor control that thing, then then most likely that the spec will favor one particular vendor and one kind of causing issue for other vendors. So what we did actually trying to avoid that, uh, interestingly, for this CSI project specifically, is we say that only container orchestration system community members, a representative can be the approver for that spec so that if folks on CO's perspective and don't allow any storage vendor to be a, an approver for this spec, 
so that we avoid this issue, like having one vendor control the spec and things like container orchestration system from their perspective, it wants to be vendor neutral because it wants to work with any vendor, any storage vendor. So I think the goal is aligned. So I think that model will make it easier for us to, to make the spec vendor neutral. And that's actually what we did. There's a number of design questions around building this container storage interfaces, distributed systems design questions, and software architecture design questions. The CSI, it could work through a CLI, a command line interface, or it could work through a long-running service. So you could have the storage vendor have to deploy a binary on a host in order to be executed through a CLI, in that situation, the container orchestrator would invoke the binary, and that would allow the container orchestrator to connect to the storage system. And then alternatively, in the service model, the container orchestration vendor would deploy a service on the host, and then the orchestrator would make requests to the service, and then the service would broker the connection between the container orchestrator and the storage system. Why is this an important question? How do these two approaches to connecting a storage system to a container orchestrator, how do these two approaches contrast? Yeah, I think I kind of briefly mentioned that um, the design goal that we want to achieve and uh, we look into existing interface at a time and uh, um, most of the interface actually is CLI-based. For example, the flex volume is CLI-based and on the CNI, the container network interface is a CLI-based interface. And we have this debate whether we should go with service versus CLI. I think that the main complaint that people had uh, with a CLI-based interface is it's super hard to deploy compared to a service, which you can just use a container. Like that's the reason container orchestration system exists, deploy containers. It's much easier to do that, deploy a service than deploy CLIs. And I think the other problem is, I think if a CLI-based binary, if you you call the CLI interface, usually the CLI binary require root access to, to do things. And it's not very safe to, to allow an arbitrary binary that's written by the vendor to do that. And by running a service, you can use many of these container container primitive like Linux uh, Linux capabilities or, or you unprivilege the user and give grant some additional capabilities to, to kind of restrict that access. And also I think CLI, like the dependency management, this is kind of related to the deploy issue where the dependency of the CLI is hard to deploy <laughs> because there's not really an easy way to deploy those binaries. The only way I can think of right now is using like those like Puppet Chef, Ansible, those kind of stuff to deploy those CLI binary dependencies, which is not easy to upgrade or maintain. And also I think uh, specifically for storage um, compared to networking, the storage has one unique requirement, which is there is some certain file system called Fuse, uh, where the file system itself is running in the user land, not in the kernel space. For Fuse-based backends, uh, things like S3FS, those kind of Fuse-based backend, it'll require a long-running process anyway. So basically, the long-running process is the one that's serving those file system API calls. And the, the long-running service if the long-running service is down, the file system is down. So for storage specifically, uh, we have this requirement that uh, some of the backend require a long-running service anyway. So I think in that case, a service makes more sense because then you can just jam all these dependencies into one single container, including the plugin interface as well as these long-running services for Fuse backend. And, and that makes the decision much easier. I mean, I think that's a pretty natural decision that we go with service because of these kind of issues with CLI and also there's some special requirement for storage to have a long-running service running. You talked earlier about the item potency question. So all API calls between the container orchestrator and the storage system, the underlying, the, the storage system that you're interfacing with, all these calls should be item potent. And item potency means that an operation could be applied multiple times without changing the result that the initial application of that operation had. So for example, if the container orchestrator issues a call to the storage system that says, hey, I want to provision the amount of space that I need for a volume on my container orchestrator, or I want to be able to have a, this volume abstraction so I can interface with it and write, you know, write database entries to it. If you made that call to the storage system, you could imagine all kinds of networking failures that would result in a block of storage being allocated on the storage system. 
and then maybe the call fails and you know that that storage block got allocated but it never got assigned within the container orchestrator to a specific volume and then the container orchestrator might retry and then the storage system would spin up another blob of storage and then the first blob of storage would be orphaned I mean, that kind of thing would be problematic. So describe some of the difficulties around item potency in the interaction between a container orchestrator and this storage system. Yeah, uh, and the example you give is exactly right. The, the exact problem we face uh, when we deal with uh, in previous interface like Docker volume driver interface, for example, the create volume um, call in the DVDI interface is not item potent. Uh, you don't specify the ID of the volume when you do the create volume call. Instead, it will return an ID to you. And if the, the response, you the CO didn't receive the response, then that volume created by the backend will be leaked. No one have a handle to that volume. And that's a big problem for a for storage system. And that's the reason we're trying to kind of fix that by requesting that, oh, the create volume call should be item potent. So what that means is essentially you have to specify a name or an ID of the volume when you make the call. And so that the CEO has a reference to that um, volume handle, like the name or the ID. And so that if even if you don't receive um, the response, you can try that call again. And then we dictate that the storage pro- provider should make sure that if the same volume ID is used, uh, it should result the same result. So it will give you, it will return a success eventually to the CEO and CEO will receive the response and processing the rest. I think these are just based on the experience that we have when we're building such a systems. I think another example for that is AWS EBS interface API itself is not item potent because when you actually create an EBS volume, um, the call don't allow you to add in tags atomically. You can only add a tag once the volume is created. So that's problematic because once you create the volume, if you don't receive the handle, that volume will just be leaked. The same issue that I described earlier. And we face a lot of issues with EBS due to that. And that makes us think that item potency is really important. Otherwise, it will be so much painful to recover those orphan volumes. So that's the reason we we, we put that as a top priority for, for the CSI spec when we first discussed that um, to trying to solve those real issues that we saw in production. Can you solve item potency at the specification level or do the vendors that are writing to the container storage interface that are writing their their interface, like if I'm Amazon, I'm writing in my EBS connector, my CSI compliant, my container storage interface compliant connector to connect to Kubernetes, to connect to any container orchestration system. It would, you know, this would connect to Kubernetes, it would connect to Cloud Foundry. Uh, Do I have to specify the strategy for my item potency? Well, I think the spec dictate that the implementation to make the call item potent. So in the interface, for example, create volume, we in the interface, there's a field called name. So the CEO will actually specify the name of the volume when it issues a create volume call. So it's plugins responsibility to make sure that call is item potent. That what that means if you if the CEO issue the same create volume call with the same name, um, only one volume should be created. And it's plugins responsibility to, to satisfy that requirement from the spec. I know that some of the storage system might not be able to achieve that using their existing APIs. So that's their job to fixing their API to to make the life of the CEO much easier. Otherwise just like there's no way to fix that failure recovery issue in the, in, in the case of like a response get dropped. Um, so that's the historical issue that we saw. And I think that's a way to drive those vendors to fix their API, to make those their APIs item potent so that um, they can satisfy the spec so that we don't have this issue. Otherwise, this issue will never get fixed. So this is a serious issue. Right. In production. In production. So, and is the consequence of this that you just get like wasted storage space this orphaned storage space problem or are there more severe consequences to not having item potency here yeah, i think it's mainly the um the leaked volume i think that's for the create volume call uh, for other calls it just causes issues with co for example when you do a, a controller publish which essentially just attach a volume to a given box if that response you don't receive the response for that call um the co don't know what to do on um, the next 
because the, the volume might be already attached to a volume or, or, or it might not be attached to the volume. And CO might need to, without the CSI, the CO might need to use some different mechanism to figure out whether the volume is attached or not. It just so creates so much pain for CO to, to deal with that kind of logic. So the interface is trying to solve that problem by defining the, the exact semantics and say, hey, it has to be idempotent. It simplified the life for CO and also help to kind of alleviate those failure recovery problems. And the uh, and the storage vendor, they create some burden on the storage vendor, of course. Um, but I think that's the right direction. I think the, the blog post that um, the Stripe engineer wrote at the time basically saying that in any distributed system, if you want to design a robust and predictable API, you have to make the API item potent. I think that should be the first design goal when you start to work on a distributed system. I'll certainly put that link in the show notes. I want to check that out myself. It actually doesn't sound that hard for a storage vendor to implement this to fix whatever issues they would have because if the spec is that the container orchestrator declares a name and an id associated with the backing storage block or a quantity of storage that they're requesting and then they communicate that to the backing storage system and then the backing storage system checks if does something already exist on my side with that name and id if so then maybe I just connect that to the container orchestrator and things are fine. And if it doesn't, then I instantiate it. It shouldn't be that complicated, right? Yeah, actually, like, let me give you one example, which is EBS. At the time we look at EBS API, it's very hard to make that call item potent. The, the reason for that is AWS don't give you an atomic way to say, hey, I want to create a volume and also attach some of the tags to the volume. I haven't checked the recent API, but at the time we checked the API, uh, it's like that. What that means is you have to create the volume first, get the volume ID, and then attach some tags to, to the volume, which is essentially the name that's specified as by the CO. But it's not atomic. Basically, it means that if the, the plugin crashes or the CO crashes in the middle, like once the volume is created, but the, the tag has not been attached to the volume, that volume will still be orphaned. So it's about the design. I mean, I think GCE probably don't have that issue because they allow an atomic attach of tag to a given volume. So that can make the call item potent pretty easily just to say, hey, attach this given name to the volume. You can still return me in volume ID. That's fine. But the volume will have a tag so that I can check whether the tag exists for that volume if something fails before. So that's easier. But for some, some vendor, it's not that easy given using their existing API. I think that's a kind of a good thing. I think the spec kind of forced them to fix that issue because I think that has been an issue for a long time and people knows about that issue, but no one is trying to fix that. Continuing the conversation of this being a distributed systems specification that we're trying to design here, the APIs between the container orchestrator and the storage system could be synchronous or they could be asynchronous. So if they were synchronous, then a given API call would be you would have guarantees that it would be executed atomically. Everything within the system call would, would execute before the system proceeded. Asynchronously would mean that you would initiate a request from the container orchestrator to the storage system, and then it would be non-blocking, and the container orchestrator would continue doing work, and then eventually you would get a call back from the storage system and finish up whatever other kinds of work you have to do around the API call you've made. What are the trade-offs between synchronous and asynchronous APIs between the container orchestrator and the storage system? Yeah, I think the main reason people want asynchronous, especially the storage API, is because some of the storage operation is super long. For example, um, to attach a volume or detach a volume, it might take minutes um, or, or, or like tens of like 20 minutes. I see, I've seen cases where like a detach take 20 minutes. So since it's super long and when an operation is long, the natural um, design question is whether this API should be async so that you have a callback. And in the meantime, you can start to process some other uh, operations. But the trade-off of an async API is that it's, it's significantly more complex than a synchronous API because then you have to have some sort of ID for your operation. And when you receive a callback, you have to correlate that uh, operations uh, correlate that a response to an, uh, a previously pending operation. So it's create uh, so much complexity into the CLS code. And also, I think the async itself, the, the reason people want async is because it, it, they, they think that it solved the long-running operation problem by using asynchronous operation, but it, does, it really doesn't because at the end of the day, the CO has to time out anyway. 
because if the CEO didn't receive a response or a callback after like 20 minutes, it has to has to time out just to be defensive. What if the, the storage system is completely down or um, there's no recovery, there's no operator on coming to fix the problem. So CEO needs to be defensive anyway to, to deal with those kind of scenarios. So async really doesn't help in that scenario. I think the key here is trying to make the call item potent so the CEO can just safely retry with the same operation and expect the same result. If they don't receive the response, it will retry again until the timeout happens. And the plugin implementation can still be async. Just the interface between CEO and the storage vendor has to be synchronous for the sake of simplicity. Plugin can choose their implementation. It can be async for sure. And I know many people choose to be async for long-running operations. That's totally fine. Let's give an example here. I want to create a database on top of a volume on a container orchestration system. Now that we've given so much more detail into what the container storage interface does, describe describe what happens if I want to create a database for my WordPress blog on my container orchestrator, what's going to happen behind the scenes? Maybe you could give one or two examples of different storage systems that would potentially be a good fit for backing this database that I need to create and, and how these would be created and connected to my container orchestrator. Yeah, so let's just use EBS as a, an example. Um, say, and also using Kubernetes, so when you deploy your Again, MySQL... Am- sorry, uh, Amazon Elastic Block Storage, just for, for people who don't know. Right. Okay. So when you, I'm going to use Kubernetes as an example, um, just to demonstrate how this whole thing works. So the operator will actually um, talk to API server to create your um, MySQL application, a bunch of pod. And, and a pod is just a collection of containers that are running on the same network namespace. And when the CEO first needs to make a scheduling decision to where to place those pods. So once that scheduling decision has been made, since Swarm the container, the MySQL container needs a volume to store its data, a persistent volume to store its data. The CEO will find out that, say, the MySQL pod needs a volume and the agent component of the CEO, in this case is a kubelet, will actually trying to uh, make that volume available on the node so that MySQL application container can actually write to the volume. So the CEO will actually, at this time, will actually trying to attach the volume. That's assumed the volume already exists. I'm going to go back to talk about what if the volume does not exist, what's the workflow. But if the volume already exists, the CEO will, um, the CEOs will actually just invoke the CSI interface to attach the volume to a given node um, that the scheduler pick and buy mount, I mean, and mount the volume on a specific location on the node. And then using Docker to launch the container and uh, uh, one of the volume for the container is actually that mounted file system on the node already that previously done by the CEO by invoking the CSI uh, interface. So that's kind of the like the launch path where you, you have the workload reference to a persistent volume and assuming the volume already exists. If the volume does not exist, so in, in Kubernetes, the typical way is the container will, um, the pod will actually specify a persistent volume claim saying, I want a 10 gig volume um, that that has storage class full. And storage class, as I mentioned, is in direction from uh, a name to a, a set of vendor specific parameter for that class of storage. And Kubernetes will actually translate that volume, pro, a volume class, a storage class, like fast to a bunch of vendor specific parameters and actually call the CSI interface when it saws a persistent volume claim. And if there's no persistent volume that bind to that claim yet, you're trying to create a new persistent volume that can satisfy the requirement of that claim. And at the time, you're trying to call CSI create volume, trying to create a volume, um, persistent volume. By using that CSI interface and uh, the backend will actually provision an actual EBS volume uh, for that persistent volume claim. And this PV will be bind to that P- persistent volume claim. And then the rest will be the same. The, the pod will be scheduled by the scheduler on node. Um, the kubelet will actually make the volume available on the node by invoking um, the, the CSI interface like publish volume and control publish and no publish. Once that database is wired up and it's connected to the backing EBS storage, what happens if my database application container or my container orchestration system what happens if my database application container dies 
So if the application dies, um, the scheduler will make a decision to where, I mean, basically scheduler will try to restart the same application, not necessarily on the same node, but potentially on a different node. So if that happens, like for example, um, the scheduler decides to place the application on a different node, then the kubelet will actually try to make sure that the same volume will be accessible from the second node. And it will try to do a, the detach first, for the EBS case, you're trying to detach EBS volume from the previous node first and then attach to the new node. And that all process is through CSI by calling some specific CSI interface, like unpub- controller unpublished volume and then controller published to a new node and controller node published to the node. Right. So if you have a, your database application container and that container is scheduled on a pod, and the volume is connected to a specific pod because each volume in Kubernetes is connected to a specific pod. That volume is connected to your database application container. Your database application container dies, so the database application container is going to get rescheduled onto either that node, in which case it can just reconnect that node and it'll probably get you know scheduled to the same pod, or if it gets scheduled to a different pod, then your volume could just get unmounted and then reconnected to the other pod on the same node. Alternatively, if there's a different node, as you said, the volume would get disconnected from the the previous node and then would re- get reconnected to that new node. So okay, so that so we walked through that failure scenario. Is there a failure scenario that's that would be common in the case of the storage system failing? So your EBS, I don't I don't know much about Amazon EBS, but can can that system fail? And then, you know, does the does the container orchestrator have to reschedule for a new storage backing system? Does it have to reschedule in that instance? This is typically it's a hard problem and usually require like operator to to intervene. For example, usually when you discover this problem, usually some metrics of the application itself goes wrong. For example, your write time to a in, in for each transaction, like the time you need to to, perf- to perform a transaction goes extremely high. And those matches trick some alerts and the operator will come in and will get paged. First get paged, oh why this metrics goes so high and trying to figure out the root cause. There might be some diagnosis uh, information they can collect from each individual vendor to indicate, oh this volume the disk goes bad. It needs to be rescheduled. So at a time, uh, if that's happened, then uh, usually like manual invo- intervening is required, and uh, the operator will usually like uh, replace the disk. In this, in the traditional world, like the operator will just replace the local disk. But in in the cloud native environment, I think that you can just reschedule. If you cannot recover the data, I mean, if, if the database itself is replicated, then you can just start a new node uh, with a fresh disk and it will start replicate itself. If the database itself is not replicated and the data goes bad on your disk, I don't know like what you can do. Uh, you can try, your, try very hard to recover your data from the disk. But this is pretty rare given that, for example, EBS has replication itself. So the probability that this happens is pretty low. But if that happens, I think there's nothing you can do. The data is being uncorrupted on the box. And if you don't have replication, then it's a bad situation anyway. Let's zoom out a little bit. Why is this interface important to Mesosphere? You work at Mesosphere. Mesosphere is a business. And obviously, it's based on open source technology. And so open source technology is somewhat important at a core level to Mesosphere. Why is the container storage interface uniquely important such that your full-time job right now, or maybe it's not your full-time job, but you you spend a lot of time on this container storage interface, which is an open source community interface project. Why is this important enough that Mesosphere has allocated resources to it? Yeah, I think, I mean, from company's perspective, from Mesosphere's perspective, we want to solve customer issues. I, th- I think one of the issues that we want to, that our customer has is on storage, because we see a bunch of issues with our previous uh, interface that we use for storage integration, which is DVDI. But as I said earlier, that we find out a lot of issues, real production issues for those because of using that interface. And that's the reason kind of we start to think and also like talking to other um, folks from different CEOs to see if they have the same um, problem. It turns out that they have the same problem. 
and we are trying to solve the same problem. So, uh, so, so, so that's the motivation from company's perspective because we have customer that run into real issues with their existing interfaces, and they want to fix that. And we also talk to other CEOs, and they have the same issue. So, kind of, we are go. Our goal is kind of aligned and great. So, we need to figure out a new interface so that it will benefit everyone, benefit our customers, benefit their customers, benefit storage vendors too. So that's the reason like we spend resources to build this community. We want that to be successful. We want to reduce the burden of storage vendor. We want to make our customer happy because of using that new interface that solves some of the, the real production issues for our customers. So you and I were both at KubeCon in Copenhagen recently. And what I thought was, well, I guess what I took away from a business point of view at KubeCon was that there were a lot of enterprises that were very interested in buying different products from container product vendors. So there's all these vendors in the container space. There's obviously orchestration vendors like Mesosphere. There's security vendors. There's monitoring and tracing and all these different products. And enterprises are ready to buy this stuff. I don't know how much how much insight you have into this, but tell me about the buyer these days, the enterprise buyer, the type of customer that Mesosphere is catering to. Maybe they've got a lot of legacy systems. What are they looking for when they shop around for these different container product provider vendors? What are they looking for? Yeah, so we have customers from different, I mean, we are targeting for like Fortune 500, uh, maybe Fortune like 2000 uh, enterprises. And the reason they want to buy the software is because they don't have the people resource to build themselves. And there are like specific features they're looking for um, that our platform provides. So for example, one example is like security, like many of the, the banking, like we have a lot of banking customers that, that require, I mean, they have a very strict security policy and they require some security feature that we build on top of the open source solutions. And some customer, for example, the teleco, like we have a lot of customer in the teleco industry and a lot of the case they're looking for something like IoT like thing. And the, the reason that they buy Mesosphere is because Mesosphere provides this platform that can run not just stateful, stateless applications. You can also run stateful applications, things like Cassandra, Kafka, and also you can run analytics workloads like Spark. And that kind of gives a kind of very coherent story. Like you have your IoT devices that collect data and that, that will be ingested into a pub sub like Kafka. And then you have your database, like your key value store, Cassandra, and you have Spark that can actually subscribe to these pub sub system like Kafka and to do either like analytics and also store persist those data. So it's just like a very nice storyline for them to, to solve their real problems. I think a lot of customers buy us because we provide uh, not just stateless solutions, also stateful solutions like Cassandra, Kafka, HDFS, the things that um, the customer need and they don't have resources to build themselves. All right. Well, G, it's been great talking to you. I want to Thank you for coming on the show and talking about container storage. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. It's nice talking to you, too. Wow.